Uh, welcome to Longwoods Healthcare Rounds. I am Matthew Hart, CEO for Longwoods, uh, producers of these events. Uh, I wanted to take a minute and thank Michael Kahn and Anka Dio uh, from Workday for supporting Longwoods as we work to create this event for you. To guide you through this morning, I would like to introduce you to, although many of you may already know her, the national digital health leader and partner for KPMG Canada, Lydia Lee. Lydia, it's all yours. Thanks, Matt. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I'm really excited for today's session. So uh, just to open today's session with the keynote address, I'm delighted to introduce a man who really needs no introduction. Dr. Robert Bell is Ontario's former Deputy Minister of Health, and prior to that, he was the President and CEO of the University of Health Network. And to me, Bob was the most inspiring leader I've ever worked with, and, uh, and it's a real privilege to be with you here today, Bob. So over to you. Well, thanks so much, Lydia. That was uh, very kind of you, and uh, we certainly had a good time working together. So thanks for the opportunity to talk about where we stand in Canadian healthcare today. Obviously, uh, some very important features. Currently, the ongoing pandemic continues to influence our perception of and our delivery of the health system in Canada. And of course, uh, in the last couple of days, a uh, new federal government, the impact that's going to have. So lots of things to think about designing Canadian healthcare for the future, lots of opportunities for change, lots of opportunities to serve people better. And in discussing the topic today, there are a few things I wanna focus on. The most important is of course, what do the people that we're serving want? What do Canadians want? What do we know about that? How are we doing today? What have we learned from the pandemic? How are we gonna get people to come and work in our Canadian health system, who will be doing the work and how will we encourage them? How will we incent them to get excited about healthcare? And finally, how will we afford it? What are some of the challenges with respect to affordability we're seeing today? And what are some of the potential solutions? So I'm gonna talk about Canadians, but I'm gonna also talk about data from the province that I obviously know best, Ontario. Uh, when I was deputy minister, we continued the excellent habit of asking a large number of Ontarians what they thought about their health system every year. This now includes uh, cell phone uh, interviews as well as landline interviews. And generally speaking, Ontarians were fairly happy with their healthcare system. Over the years that I was there from 214 to 218, Ontarians said they were happy that most of them had family doctors, about 95% of them did, but they expressed two concerns. The first was a real concern, and that was they couldn't get access to their primary care providers as often or as readily as they wanted. About 50% of people describe problems with access to primary care. The other was more potential. Everybody was worried about whether or not they could get access to secondary care, to consultation, to surgery, if it was necessary. At any given time, most people don't need access to specialized services. People worried in general, what would the wait time be if I needed or my aunt needed a total hip, how long would it take? And certainly these concerns are reflected in the most recent, this is 2021 data from the, the Commonwealth Fund, which we're used to seeing. And you can see, unfortunately, that we continue to be 10th overall. Um, I can't see the, the only, country worse than us, the United States, 11th. And the problems that the Commonwealth Fund identifies, access to care, interesting equity, we think of ourselves as an equitable system, but they look at the lack of a universal pharmacare system 
And they hear that from consumers in Canada, the lack of universal pharmacare, possibly something that will now change following the federal election uh, is a major concern. So certainly when we think about our health system and international comparisons, we don't perform very well. What have we learned from the pandemic? What are the themes that have evolved during the pandemic that will undoubtedly continue? The first is of course, the reliance on virtual care uh, that developed very quickly in April and May and June of 2020. Uh, virtual care has been something that we've known has been needed in our Canadian health system, but suddenly it arrived, largely because governments agreed to pay for virtual care. We've learned about a focus on vulnerable people in our communities. We've learned that they're the people most susceptible, those essential workers who are often new Canadians who are often working in crowded or living in crowded communities and working in crowded workspaces are those people who have been most vulnerable to the pandemic risks. And we recognize that population health needs to have a focus on people who are most vulnerable if we're going to improve the general health of Canadians. I'm gonna talk a little bit about the focus on long-term care and seniors care. And of course, we've been just overwhelmed by the wait times that developed, the backlogs for surgical care, for cancer screening, for diagnostic services, seeing specialists that have developed as a result of the pandemic. Our usual concern about wait times has been dramatically heightened. And a new commitment, I think, to looking at new methods, new models for improving wait times is something that we can expect to see out of, coming out of the pandemic. That includes virtual care, not only virtual access to primary care, but also monitoring, virtual monitoring. This is Heather Ross, the head of cardiology at University Health Network, Mount Sinai, who's demonstrated that you can care for congestive heart failure patients better if you keep them at home and monitor their physiologic function, their symptoms, than if you actually see them in clinic. So this method of remote monitoring has also taken a giant leap forward as a result of the pandemic and the fact that people couldn't come in to hospital clinics for their usual specialist appointments. So if we're thinking about our health system, you know, one of the first things Canadians think about is how have we done during the pandemic? A great stress test for a health system, public health resources, healthcare resources, the pandemic's provided a pretty good analysis of how health systems respond, certainly in emergent fashions. And how have we done? I'm using data here from before the onset of pretty, uh, pretty complete or developing complete uh, immunization. You know, in terms of infection control risk, you know, if you compare us to our US, US neighbors or Western Europe, we've done pretty well. Not as well as Asian countries in the early days of the pandemic, our island, uh, uh, colleagues in Australia and New Zealand certainly did better, but generally speaking, not bad. How have we done in terms of mortality? Again, not bad compared to the United States and Western Europe, not as good as Asia in the early first year of the pandemic, but better than some of our usual comparators. If we look at immunization, I think we'd probably say that we've done extraordinarily well, both with procurement of vaccines, effective vaccines, and in terms of distribution of vaccines, getting the proverbial uh, shot into the arm, Canada has done extremely well. And right now we're probably the best performing wealthy G7 nation, according to data from Johns Hopkins. So certainly there are several features that suggest to us that the Canadian health system 
our governments, be it federal or provincial, have responded well to pandemic challenges. But there's one area where we have not been proud of performance, and that's in the impact in institutional care of seniors and long-term care. Canada has by far the highest proportion of national mortality that's occurred in seniors congregate living, in long-term care especially. You can see this here, this is data uh, from earlier in 2021, where it became obvious that about 80%, if we look across Canada, about 80% of mortality that occurred in this country occurred in long-term care. Really an astonishing metric when you look at the experience in other countries, a demonstration to us that really a focus on seniors congregate living and a focus on seniors care strategy in general needs to be something that we consider. Perhaps not surprising when you look at this data again from the Commonwealth Fund comparing wealthy countries and the proportion of their healthcare spend on long-term care, you can see that Canada is a relatively poor performer. We're below the OECD mean and we're well below the expenditure on long-term care that occurs in Western European countries, which I think it's fair to say are really leaders in the development of seniors strategy. So we have not been spending on long-term care and that has become very evident during the course of the pandemic. If we look at how we manage seniors with increased frailty and increased cognitive decline, a large proportion of Canadians, this is over 65, end up in long-term care. You can see Quebec with the highest proportion approaching 10%, Ontario average around five to 6%. So certainly compared to Scandinavian countries, a larger proportion of our seniors live in congregate settings funded by publicly funded healthcare in this country. There's no question that there's been a dramatic escalation in long-term care resident deaths during the course of the pandemic. Here we can see data from April of 2020, where the average weekly deaths occurring in long-term care suddenly escalated, escalated dramatically, uh, virtually doubled. And we all recognize this, certainly the, the media has reported this, that long-term care became a dangerous place to live. Not only that, it became a pleasant place to live as seniors were isolated from their loved ones, as seniors were literally locked in their rooms, not allowed to leave their rooms, uh, doors being opened and uh, plates being pushed in to provide them with food, uh, care not being provided. Uh, a real negative experience. And Canadians understand that. I'm going to show you data on how that reflects our understanding of the opportunity that long-term care has in the future. One of the things that became evident, this is data from the Canadian Institute of Healthcare Information, was that part of the reason for mortality in long-term care was the disconnection of long-term care in this country. Uh, this is data from Ontario, but it can be replicated everywhere. Transfers for care, whether it was for pneumonia, congestive heart failure, just sepsis, just about any transfer to an acute care setting plummeted during the early stages of the pandemic where long-term care operators were told, we don't want your patients in acute care settings. This is true in Quebec, true in Ontario. Operators were told we wanna to reserve 
acute care for acute care of COVID patients. We don't want your patients coming. Part of the reason why outcomes were so terrible in long-term care and why they improved when hospitals started taking over management of long-term care, increasing integration of long-term care into the healthcare system. If we look at uh, data that's arrived, one of the things we always compare, complain in Canada that we don't have data, but certainly we've been a leader in understanding what the long-term care uh, impact, long-term care mortality in Ontario and also the work in other provinces across the country and demonstrated the impact of crowding of multiple residents literally sharing air in the same rooms and the impact this had on both outbreaks and mortality. And this is Ontario data. You can see that older homes in Ontario had two to four people sharing rooms. That was a clear distinction from more modern long-term care facilities built in the 2000s, where one to two people at most would share a room. So what do we do? And this starts to impact on the latter two questions that we're asking today. Who's going to work in the Canadian healthcare system going forward? And how can we afford publicly going forward? Well, if you look at Ontario, the population of 75 and older people is increasing at 4% per annum, an enormous increase. The fastest growing demographic in Ontario is people over the age of 100. If we look at Ontario as an example, there's an enormous need for redevelopment of long-term care facilities in this province. We have 32,000 beds out of our 78,000 total long-term care beds that are in buildings where three to four people share a room. Now, they're prevented from doing that now. Homes that have had outbreaks cannot put four people in a room, but there are 32,000 beds in these homes that were built from 1975 to 2000 that have standards that allow four people in a room. These clearly need to be redeveloped. There's also a wait list of 38,000 people at the start of the pandemic waiting for long-term care in Ontario. I'm gonna talk about the need to move away from reliance on long-term care for people who are developing frailty and cognitive decline. But there's no question that some people need long-term care. And these challenges, the capital challenges of redeveloping and expanding our long-term care system simply need to be met. And that's going to be expensive. If we look at the cost of new beds, uh, if we look, I'm not gonna bore you with details of how construction funding subsidies work, but if we look at the down payments that not-for-profit groups have to raise, that for-profit groups have to, bring as investments to develop new homes. If we look at the model of hospital managed and owned long-term care as possibly a new way to increase not-for-profit ownership, we're talking about an average cost according to the Ontario Long-Term Care Association of $350,000 per bed. And if we look at that simply at redeveloping the 32,000 old beds built before 2000 that need to be redeveloped, and expanding capacity to deal with the waiting list that's 70,000 beds costing between 24 billion, depending on the land cost and $30 billion. Now I'll remind you that, you know, the Ontario debt is currently $350 billion. So 
just to stand still. If we're going to rebuild all these beds and build new beds based on the public purse, we're going to have to increase our provincial debt by 10% simply to respond to current challenges, not growth, but simply to respond to current challenges. So needless to say, a real financial challenge in capital. And of course, who is going to work in long-term care? Who's gonna work in our health system, but who's gonna work in long-term care? Well, you know, numerous, uh, numerous bodies have looked at this, have looked at the number of hours that are necessary for effective long-term care, personal care, nursing care, and the general summary across the country is we need to invest in hours of care, we need to increase pay, we need to increase full-time opportunities if we're gonna have people who want to work in long-term care and provide safe care to their residents. Here are, here's some data from, uh, from Ontario. Uh, you know, one of the things that's been an important debate in Ontario is the issue of for-profit versus not-for-profit care. Uh, the suggestion has been that people in, uh, in for-profit care are paid less and have worse working conditions. And I'll just remind everybody that these are all unionized workers. Here's data from the Ministry of Health, average uh, pay for personal support worker in for-profit long-term care in Ontario is about 48 cents less than it is in, uh, in not-for-profit care. I'll also remind you that all these workers do not have the right to strike. They're all in Ontario compensated under the Health Labor Disputes Arbitration Act. So they all have their, their hourly wages and benefits set essentially by arbitration. You know, the issue of for-profit and not-for-profit is one that we can debate endlessly, uh, but here's some data that reflects some of the reality of what is currently the situation in this province. No matter what the future of long-term care is, whether it's private, whether it's for-profit, whether it's not-for-profit, municipal, there's no question that this is going to be a challenge. Long-term care is offering a very substantial challenge to healthcare funding on the capital side, and it's also going to offer a substantial challenge on the operating costs when we look at the fact that we need to increase salaries in long-term care for personal support work in particular to make this a more attractive part of the healthcare system. We need to have more hours of care provided to residents in long-term care. The current cost in Ontario of about $5.6 billion on a $64 billion budget operating costs for long-term care is undoubtedly going to increase. And I can easily do a back of the envelope that demonstrates it's going to be north of $8 billion. So in addition to the fiscal challenge of building new long-term care, we're going to need to think about increase in funding to operate long-term care. Then the question becomes, how will we staff? You know, lots of opportunities today in service work and uh, and working within the distribution economy, how will we convince people that working in long-term care, that working in healthcare in general is a future career that is reliable, that is attractive? What are the things that we need to be thinking about? And clearly pathways of job progression by coming into long-term care, having opportunities to move out of the personal support worker, job, uh, job characterization into other roles, the thought of immigration, although it's never, never great to think about stealing from other countries, but certainly immigration has always served as a staffing, 
approach in long-term care for personal support for entry levels in healthcare. And that's certainly something we need to think about as a strategy. Scope of practice, how do we bring in various folks? How do we bring in assistance? How do we bring in different roles that will allow us to care for residents better in the most cost-effective way possible? And how do we think of gig workers? How do we think of people working at the margin of healthcare demand? Not the day-to-day who need to be full-time workers, who need to have full-time employment. But how do we think about those inevitable marginal costs in an industry that requires 24 seven, 365 care? And whether that is born by the worker, whether it's born, you know, thinking about new methods for bringing gig workers to bear and that 2% of marginal need in the healthcare system is something that I think we need to think about and respond to. So what are Canadians thinking about the future of long-term care? Well, you know, here's a question from Angus Reid, a recent poll that said, you know, do you dread the thought of yourself or a loved one living in long-term care? Half of Canadians dread the thought. Would you want to do anything that you can do to avoid? And about 50% of Canadians said, yes, we want to avoid it at all costs. But only about 15% of Canadians were willing to think about increasing savings to pay for this. So certainly Canadians are thinking about publicly funded solutions as responding to what we've learned about long-term care during the pandemic, as opposed to private insurance or other modalities of paying for care. And here you can see the similar, the same Angus Reid poll saying, should we be making substantial changes, radical changes? The answer most Canadians are saying, yes, we should. We should be making big changes to congregate seniors living. So let's talk about other options because I think if we're looking at both dealing with the enormous costs for dealing with current problems, and then thinking about the expansion of this part of the healthcare system, 4% per annum, we have to look at other options. And the obvious option that Canadian healthcare has been looking at forever is home care versus long-term care. And you all know this statistic that currently, this is Ontario data. Again, I apologize, I don't have Canadian data, but about 80,000 people prior to the pandemic were being served in long-term care, 800,000 people being served in home care. So clearly, this is uh, an opportunity for us. If we look at the cost of uh, home care on average, and you know, this not only includes seniors, this also includes children. Uh, chronically ill children who are being looked at at home often or in school in some cases, but often being looked at in the home for dramatic situations requiring ventilation at home. So home care doesn't only serve seniors. It's also an important part of pediatric care as well. But you see the difference in cost. Uh, Long-term care costing today $56,000 a year in Ontario. Uh, probably going to be closer to 80,000 as staffing changes are made, as funding changes are made. Whereas home care is substantially less money, obviously, and substantially potentially better value. So let's talk about new models for care. Let's talk about copying some of the work in Scandinavia. Let's talk about copying some of the innovation that's occurred in this country, naturally occurring retirement communities Vertical aging in urban centers is something that's catching interest and something I believe offers opportunity. If you look at Toronto, 
work done at UHN Open Labs demonstrates there are close to 100,000 seniors living in apartment buildings ranging from Toronto community housing to high-priced condominiums along the waterfront and Bay Street. A lot of seniors are choosing to live vertically as they reach 75 to 80 to 90 years of age. And this offers an opportunity for a different kind of congregate care and potentially a new social contract that says we can provide you with better, more intensive home care, more independence, more support in your home, but you have to leave. You have to leave the place where you've been living and move to a congregate setting where you will be independent. We won't be able to lock you in your room, but a new social contract that says intensive home care requires different living circumstance and recognizes the crucial point that in the social determinants of care, housing is one of the most important determinants. Intensive home care requires congregate setting, different models of care with PSWs and buildings and a variety of different ways of providing care would be facilitated by naturally occurring retirement communities. And I think this is one of the things we have to be exploring in development of a new senior strategy. So what have we learned? We've learned, I believe, that caring for seniors in a high quality, cost-effective manner is the biggest challenge for our publicly funded healthcare system. If we can't figure this out, we can't afford publicly funded healthcare in Canada. We desperately need a new senior strategy. It needs to be focused on independent living, but we still need to redevelop those long-term care settings with new approaches to staffing, that are necessary for those people who require long-term care. So it's been a great opportunity to kick this off today with this keynote. I will leave you with the fact that a novel is gonna be coming out next week on Amazon and subsequently in the stores. Uh, all proceeds from this novel will be contributed to the UHN Foundation to support primary care research. Search for this on Amazon, add it to your Christmas shopping list. You order more than 10 copies, I'll come and see you and sign every copy before you send it. So Lydia, thanks for the opportunity and I'll leave this up while we chat. This is called product placement. <laughs> Great, Post. Bob, thank you. Bob, that was an incredible presentation. There were so many questions in the chat that interestingly, I think you actually helped to address a number of them. However, there was one that I do wanna to put to you um, that I think is a really, it's a really hard one. And, and that is, uh, is a question from Joshua Schwartz who said, how do we change the stigma of long-term care having a culture of not being innovative and agile so that we can increase recruitment efforts of our young forward thinking leaders. So, you know, how do we really attract people, Bob, yeah. to, to address some of these really big challenges? Well, if I were deputy minister in charge of long-term care and the healthcare system, I would not be looking at long-term care. I, I think the move in Ontario to move long-term care out of the Ministry of Health is a mistake. I would say we need, and nothing demonstrated that better than the isolation the long-term care had from the healthcare system that resulted in mortality. I would be saying, how do we care for seniors as they become frail and cognitively challenged? And it's probably a combination of things. I think that long-term care for respite needs to be, I think so many different features need to be expanded with people seeing a career of seniors care mm. being present in the community and home care. We can't have these massive differentials. As you know, home care pays about 18 bucks an hour in Ontario versus 22 bucks in long-term care versus 26 bucks in the hospital for the same job. Mm. So 
Your question is an excellent question. And I think it requires a rethink and a redevelopment of the way we look after seniors in general with recognition of the various features involved that they require at different stages, not only of their health, but also their social circumstance. Obviously somebody who's lost a spouse is far more vulnerable, lost a partner than somebody who is living in a, in a setting with their, that's why NORC can be so valuable is maintaining that social support for seniors. So I didn't answer your question. I apologize because it's literally unanswerable in a small siloed setting of how do you make long, we need to spread this out. That's great, Bob, thank you so much.